1: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, January 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And I am running for the U.S. Senate from the great state of Arizona for what, oh, I should mention the... I'm quoting. I'm quoting. The I is not me. But I'm going to go on. And maybe you could guess who it is. I think you already know. Great state of Arizona for one unwavering reason to support the agenda and policies of President Donald Trump and his mission... To make America great again, yes, Joe Arpaio, Arpaio? I say Arpaio. Joe Arpaio, Sheriff Joe, is running for the U.S. Senate. Good, good, good thing. Thank God. And really, this is why you pardon a guy. I mean, if Donald Trump could launch 100 Senate candidates, I think he would. By pardoning just the right people strategically in every state. Yeah, I know, only 33, 34 seats are up. But, you know, he doesn't know that. That's the important thing. So as I was looking at the national map and thinking about Joe Arpaio's chances, I said to myself, I think, let me check this out, but I think that the Tea Party Challenge to the kind of more normal Republican candidate has generally hurt the Republicans. And I really don't see the equivalent on the other side. Now, before I give you the evidence, there is the counter argument, what uh, very conservatives will say, what maybe Tea Partiers, they call themselves Tea Partiers, maybe now they call themselves the MAGA crowd. And they would point to the number of very conservatives that were elected. Case in point, Mike Lee, Utah, he defeated Bob Bennett. He primaried Bob Bennett. Bob Bennett, seen as more centrist, and now you have Mike Lee, and he's a full-throated tea partier, uh, individual rights guy. So that's a triumph. But here's the thing. Utah was never going to vote Democrat anyway. If you look at states that could plausibly have voted Democrat or Republican, and Arizona is a purplish, trending more towards, well, actually, it's trending purple, but, you know, historically more a uh, conservative Republican state. But if you look at states where Either side could have won, but the Tea Party put forward an unacceptable candidate to the masses, I definitely think it has hurt Republicans more than it has hurt Democrats. In fact, if the Senate is in play now and five thirty-eight, and the betting markets say that the Democrats actually could retake the Senate. It's about 50-50. If it's in play now, it's only because of these past mistakes of Republicans, of Tea Partiers, offering the wrong candidate in the general election. I'm thinking of they had Mike Castle running in Delaware. The year was 2012. He's a, he was the statewide elected representative. And because he was elected statewide and because he had such a history behind him, what he had to do is appeal to both Democrats and Republicans. Well, Very right-wing Republicans do not like Republicans who also appeal to Democrats, so they primaried him. They put forth Christy O'Donnell, and she lost, and they lost that seat. The same can be said for Nevada and, to some extent, Colorado, when, once again, a different Senator Bennett beat Ken Buck. The more mainstream Republican candidate would have been the former Lieutenant Governor Jane Norton. Most people think that she would have won. Instead, you have a Democrat there. In fact, back then, Charlie Cook, the political handicapper, before all these primaries took place, said Republicans had a, uh, you know, two-thirds chance of taking the Senate. In fact, changed to a likelihood of a Democrat win, according to Cook's estimation, to 60%. And that's what happened. They controlled the Senate. So I think Republicans have hurt themselves a lot more by ideological purity tests than Democrats have. In fact, I don't think Democrats have helped at all. In fact, without Republicans overreaching and primarying uh, candidates who might have appeal to the mainstream, they'd be in a much more solid position of power now. And really, is Mitch McConnell so off the reservation in terms of your ideals so far away from uh, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Mike Lee or a Tea Party favorite? Joe Arpaio might lose in the Republican primary, but if he wins, I think he really endangers that state if you want to hold the Senate and you're the Republicans. I looked at uh, Joe Arpaio's recent record running just for sheriff of Maricopa County, and uh, he got less and less a percent of the vote until in 2016, he was voted out. The Democrat won. And I looked up the voter registration statistics in Maricopa County. There are 1.1 million registered Democrats and 1.268 registered Republicans. So incumbency. And a party advantage still had him losing. I'd say he could only screw this up, as Roy Moore did, for his party come November. On the show today, I spiel about my adventures on Twitter. I tried to defend Oprah because I think she needed it. But first, in the spirit of fascination, a genius, a stable genius, I assume she's stable. She seemed rock solid to me when I talked about her, who studies the effects of I suppose you could call it social contagion. She studied Rwanda. She goes throughout the world and is just a fascinating conversation with a professor and MacArthur Genius Grant winner, Betsy Levy Palak. The Rwandan genocide took place in the mid-90s. The tools to carry it out were decades or millennia older. There was ethnic animus, that goes back to time immemorial. There were machetes, those go back centuries. And it was egged on and fomented by a decades-old technology, radio, One researcher thought about that last tool and said, well, what if we could reverse engineer that? What if we could use mass communication, that specific form of mass communication, to bring about something good, like a change in uh, thinking about ethnic prejudice and others? That researcher is Betsy Levy-Pollock. She's at Princeton University. Uh, she won a MacArthur Genius Grant. I've been reading through her research, and let me tell you, she deserves it. Hello, Betsy. How are you?
0: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm well. So, the Rwandan genocide, was this your first big research project?
0: It was. I was an overconfident graduate student who was hungry to dive into a field site, and um, I, I made some big promises to uh, <laughs> a little radio NGO. I was very interested in mass media and and in propaganda, and um, they were foolish enough to agree to have me out and to let me pitch them this, this study that I wanted to do on a reconciliation radio soap opera.
1: Reconciliation. So this is, what, a decade after the genocide took place in 94, and you were there in when, like the early 2000s? That's right, Exactly. And what was your experiment? Describe it, please.
0: So this radio soap opera was an allegory for what happened in the years and months leading up to the genocide and then during the genocide and its aftermath. And it was an allegory because at the time, Paul Kagame, the new president of Rwanda, had outlawed all talk of that in city. So, yeah. The in then the new capital, and
1: now and still current and never leaving president of Rwanda. That's right. right. Yep.
0: That's right. That's right. And... Um, so these brilliant writers who were all Rwandans who had been involved in radio even before uh, the genocide, they were pros. They wrote this really universal story. It was a love story. It was a Romeo and Juliet story. And it, it went on from there. It really so closely paralleled what was going on in Rwanda at that time that – from time to time, the government actually shut down the soap opera. In any case, that's the program. My job was not to be involved in writing it, but rather to be the pointy-headed academic who tried to evaluate what were the causal effects of this program. And so we mm-hmm. set it up kind of like a, uh, like a medical trial. Some communities that were selected to be broadly representative of the country, they were randomly assigned to get the placebo drug, which was a different radio soap opera, and that was about women's health. And then other communities were assigned to get this new reconciliation radio program, and they listened to it for a year, and then we went in and did interviews and and behavioral observations in those communities.
1: The reconciliation radio program, the basic nub of it was that there were characters who were somewhere Hutu, somewhere Tutsi, but they were they were shown to uh, get along and love each other, is and and this would lead to seeing the other side as more human and being more tolerant. Is that right?
0: Yeah, although I think it was more nuanced and and happily more engaging than that. I think that what the genius of this particular program was was that it showed villains to be complicated people in fact one of the villains was was played by you know when I was telling my my friends about this program while I was in the midst of studying it I often described him as the James Earl Jones of Rwanda mm-hmm. and um, that's a really interesting choice for this program because a lot of people loved this character and yet he was the one who was advocating for violence and it's soap opera so you know no one's ever safe for long
1: mm-hmm. And the effects of the radio program were what? How did it change attitudes, if you heard the radio program and not the placebo drug?
0: So we measured people's attitudes, and it seemed to have impacted the way they thought about Rwandans as a group. It, in fact, changed their perceptions of the social norm. So while they might say things like, I don't believe that intermarriage will bring peace, I watched Hutu men kill their Tutsi wives. I think that we as Rwandans now, we are letting our children intermarry, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a subtle difference, but, but it's an important one because it means that you yourself might not be convinced, but you see society going in this new trajectory. And it seems like that was what that radio program was doing. Yeah. And importantly, we also found behavioral changes. So we gave them some realistic challenges. Like we would gift the communities with this um, communal resource and then tell them, you, you know, you have to share it. You have to decide how you want to use it. It's it's up to you. And uh, we would just watch them argue with one another and, and debate one another and, and look at the ways in which they re- resolved this. And the The more positive patterns of dissent that we observed and um, an active uh, collaboration and cooperation were concentrated in these places where they had been listening to the reconciliation program, their perceptions of norms were shifting. That's where the behavior shifted too. So anyway, that was my first signal as a young researcher that we might be onto something here. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to change people's minds. Maybe we should try to tell them what other people are thinking. Um, And that's what the program was doing.
1: This is so fascinating to me because I think that most people's perception of social norms is just sort of the collective expression of individuals' opinion. Maybe psychologists will say it's a little more nuanced than that. But you come along and say, Whether it is or isn't, you could actually change social norms, which is what we want. Getting into people's heads, maybe that's only a good thing to get the norms. If you get the norms changed anyway, if you get people not acting violently against a hated neighbor, does it really matter if in their heart of hearts they hate their neighbor? What really matters is that they're not not hurting their neighbor. So is this a new thing in psychology to really separate the norms from the opinion?
0: Yeah, like everything else, it's it's kind of a, a new way of saying an old thing. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of psychology started in an analysis of World War II and Nazism and fascism, and and those are my direct roots in in psychology. And a lot of those researchers were really interested in the fact that we couldn't explain the Holocaust by saying that x-many Germans had anti-Semitism just written on their hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We had to explain it through the, the social context and the ways in which German citizens thought this is just what we're doing now. This is a prime example of how spirals of silence can happen. And spirals of silence is this idea that people are afraid to go against what they see as the prevailing norm, so they just don't speak out. But their lack of speech then informs others who, who take their silence to mean assent or, you know, just status quo. And we, we think about a vast array of topics in our society, like climate change or diversity training. It's always about trying to change people's minds rather than you know changing their sense of what what's the group temperature what's what's the weather
1: yeah Yeah. What's the weather on climate change? So I was thinking about climate change because I've done a lot of research and I interviewed Al Gore and there's really robust research about how impossible it is to change people's minds. And there was a huge effort with climate change. I'm sure you're familiar with it, an educational effort and what they wanted to do, pushing out the education and pushing out the information that worked. There were many, many more mentions in the media of the causes of global warming. And if you were receptive to it, the information absolutely got out there. And opinions did not change. So maybe it would have been better instead of saying, look, what we need to do is educate people about this. Maybe it would have been better to focus on the social norm and just convince people that their neighbors thought global warming was real as opposed to convince people that global warming is real.
0: So my research is focused not just on mass media, but also on social networks. And one area that we've focused on in in this research is who are the people in your network who most people are paying attention to? They're just getting the most eyeballs. These are the people who we think are those who kind of make what's normal. Their behavior speaks more loudly to our perceptions of of what's normal. And, you know, this is another way that we figure out what the norm is, is that we look around our own environments. And, and that's another angle to take is to, to say, all right, well, who in these various communities is speaking out about climate change? And what can we do to convince them? Because it could have these cascade effects on, on what people in their, in their communities believe.
1: One phrase I hear a lot lately is permission structure. By speaking a certain way or countenancing neo-Nazis as uh, Donald Trump did, it creates a permission structure to allow them to flourish. Well, what does the research say?
0: There isn't actually a lot of research on um, institutions giving voice to, to hate groups. Mm-hmm. You know, I have studied, for example, the effect of the Supreme Court decision-making in the same-sex marriage case. And yeah. when the Supreme Court announced their, their decision in, in favor of same-sex marriage, what you see is this uh, sharp bump in people thinking that other Americans approve of same-sex marriage. There's zero change in personal attitudes.
1: One last big area inquiry I want to ask you about: during the election, it was argued that a TV station like CNN should be faulted for giving Donald Trump so much airtime. You know, they would train the cameras on the stump before he even spoke, and they would play so much more of his speeches than any than any other candidate. On the other hand, they would say. Yes, and then we came and covered him. And I think a rational viewer would be able to conclude that he was a terrible candidate, perhaps fascinating, but newsworthy and terrible. Does your research say anything who's right in that argument?
0: I think that what psychologists would say about that is that giving someone all of that airtime informs people that uh, it's the popular choice, that people want to be watching him. Uh, so my colleague, Michael Chase shows that Super Bowl ads are in part so effective, not because they're great, but because we know millions of people are watching them. Yes, yes. Right? They air
1: the same. Sometimes they air the same ad as has been airing for two weeks, but they get all reviewed and everyone goes crazy about it. Right. And I'm like, guys, they've been airing this for two weeks and you've been <laughs> tivoing over it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, given that our political coverage is like, you know, market driven Super Bowl horse race, whatever you what you want to call it coverage yeah. who gets the time matters because we know that everyone's watching it and so I think that that means that as scholars we would weigh in on this side of people saying you just you gave him way too much time if if the purpose was you know to reveal him as a not serious candidate then why do something that implies to people that he's at least a, a popular candidate or a candidate of note by giving him all that time like that's the signal that that you're sending
1: And finally, have you ever used your research to subtly influence friends or family members?
0: (laughs) I'm still working up to the level of these Rwandan scriptwriters. I I don't know that I've reached those heights. My stories are usually either exaggerated or rambling, but I'm working on it.
1: I'm trying to think about how to do this with my kids, and I think it can be done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is just using their perception of peer pressure and what everyone else is doing to uh, wash the bowl of oatmeal before it turns into concrete. I think I could like demonstrate that oatmeal has this congealing factor to it or I could just talk about how, you know, Emmett washes his bowl. I don't think you want to be the only guy that doesn't. <laughs> just try to do, a, you know, like as best you can, like
0: a social network analysis beforehand to make sure you're choosing the right person in their networks as the exemplar. That, that's what our research would suggest.
1: Oh, okay. So the The little brother might do what the big brother does. The big brother's definitely not doing what the little brother does. No
0: way. No way.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. You've helped me. I'm glad glad we got to that. (laughs) Betsy Levy-Pollock is a professor at the Department of Psychology in the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. Thank you so much, Dr. (laughs) Levy-Pollock. You're welcome. And now the spiel. Yes, I know, we all were concentrating on Oprah during the Golden Globes. A rather poorly rated affair, which somehow launched a presidential candidate, or at least a conversation. Really, isn't that the best we could ever hope for? But before Oprah ever even took the stage, there was Kirk Douglas, legendary actor. He is Spartacus. And I was staring at Kirk Douglas sitting in his wheelchair, the man's 101 years old, and being spoken of very highly, very lovingly by his daughter-in-law, Catherine Zeta-Jones. I, and I think much of America, were really fixated on one aspect of this man's career, of this man's life, of this man's biography, and that was his ears. He just had really long ears, earlobes specifically. I mean, the Maasai would have a field day with this guy. It would be a true opportunity. Not just the Maasai, many Celtic tribes as well thought that one probably shouldn't have and I I would have let the thought go there but uh, I do have access to social media sometimes poor impulse control but more importantly I found a way to point this out that I thought would be clever and elucidating and perhaps would give delight to those who are in the mood to feel delight. Picture of Mr. Douglas, fine actor, 101 years old. Do not gainsay the man or his face anything the time has visited upon it. Took a picture of his, of his face, his visage, highlighting or just really pointing to the gigantic earlobes, and they tweeted it out, and the caption for this, Kirk Douglas's award at the Golden Globes, the caption was Olden Lobes, which is, as puns go, Fantastic. It is a great pun. It is Golden Globes just without the G's. I mean, think about the symmetry involved in Olden Lobes. That's pretty amazing. I mean, if I waited for the Oscars from the Get an Award at the Academy Awards, I'd have to caption it Academy Awards. and no one would understand. And if it was some old actress who was up there getting an award and I just wanted to go with, you know, the same pun scheme commenting that this was the Oscars and have to say scars and that wouldn't be right not in this moment so olden lobes I said and I sent it out and I also said to myself I cannot defend this as being high-minded in any way and if anyone wants to criticize me for being both lookist and ageist I mean the word olden it's a two-word caption and the word olden is the first one and some people did not like it and others liked it And I said to myself, that's fine. That's what Twitter is for. You can choose to opt in or opt out. And Dave, a follower, Dave M, said, you must take that down. The man's 101 years old. And I said, I don't know what I said, but I I chose not to take it down. And then Dave M, a few hours later, tweeted back to me, you left it up. Poor taste. Fuck you. Unfollowing. I showed this to my girlfriend, and she was shocked and appalled. As I'm saying this, I'm looking at Mary. She's shocked and appalled. You expect better from Dave M, right? Or maybe, Mary, you were like, Mike, it needed to be said about the size of this man's earlobes. And my girlfriend, Michelle, said, you should report him to Twitter. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to narc on Dave M. In fact, he's right to... Be offended or upset by me. And my God, this is is the perfect. We had a dialogue. We had the Twitter version of a dialogue. You've offended me. I don't care. This was wrong for these reasons. Still, I shall make a joke. Anger, unfollow. That's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, this is in contrast to what happened uh, an hour and a half later in the night. There was Oprah making her speech. People were going nuts. And so I uh, clicked on the hashtag Oprah. But for some reason, Dinesh D'Souza, he's anti-Oprah, as luck would have it. His anti-Oprah tweet was up there. The hashtag Oprah, much of the hashtag Oprah, was divided between one of three anti-Oprah points. One was a bunch of pictures of Oprah with Harvey Weinstein, which I say is fair. She cavorted with Harvey Weinstein. It is a contrast to the current moment. Perhaps should she run for presidency yesterday's show why that's a bad idea? She'll have to explain that. Another was a bunch of crackpot theories about Oprah being eugenicist. Uh, InfoWars was behind this. But a third was one interview, one snippet from an interview that she gave to the BBC. I think the occasion was she had put out a uh, documentary about racial attitudes in America. And here, I'll play the quote. She's talking about racism, eradicating racism. Generations of people, older people who were born and bred and marinated in it, in that prejudice and racism, and they just have to die. Now, here's how many people on Twitter, on the hashtag quote, were captioning that statement that you just heard. Oprah Winfrey, a black supremacist, speaks out about racism, quote, old white people just have to die. I pointed out that might be your interpretation of what she was saying, but when you use quotes, the things inside the quotes should be the actual words they say. And I've come across this a few times, especially with really conservative inflected memes, they'll put a quote out there and then they'll link to the video, which is proof uh, and confirmation of the quote, but the video won't say what the quote says. And I really wonder, is this just sloppiness? Is this wishful thinking? Is this hoping that the people will see there's a video so of course they won't suspect that I misquoted the video purposefully? Or is this even deeper psychologically where if I write those words down, you'll actually, this is probably it, you'll actually hear Oprah saying, what she, what the uh, person put in the quotes as opposed to what Oprah was saying. So I pointed it out that this was a misquote and I also commented on another strand of uh, putting forward this one clip where people were saying that Oprah Winfrey wants old white people to die. I've watched a couple Oprah shows. I don't think that that's part of her agenda. Pretty sure it's not. You're every woman, including... White women, for instance, just, I'm just not getting that genocidal vibe off of Oprah. That's just me. But I pointed out in my tweet that whether or not Oprah wants old white people to die, old white people are going to die. Also, young white people and middle-aged Pacific Islanders. It doesn't really matter what Oprah or you or I or anyone want. The actuarial tables are pretty clear on this. Now, many people on Twitter... Some of the people that I engaged with and pointed out that this was inaccurate, they came back at me. And this, I suppose it's fair game. I did mock their quotes or their misquotes or point out that this isn't what Oprah was saying. So they could say whatever they want to me. A lot of these people have um, American flags in their name or deplorable as their Twitter handle. That's fine. One man tweeted to me, would it be racist if I said All the old blacks who have been marinated in welfare for generations will have to die off for that to change. And I was happy to help him when I said, yes, yes, it would be racist for you to say this. But the main person who I was engaging with was a guy named Rich. And I have to tell you, I normally would just ignore it, maybe mute conversations if they, you know, went off the rails. But it's very influenced by something that the comedian Sarah Silverman recently did. Someone... Someone uh, tweeted the C word at her and she, I don't know how she did it. Maybe she does this all the time and this is just the one time it worked, but she reached out with empathy and she kind of calmly explained or even said, you must be in a place of hurt. And the guy said he was, and the guy said, I'm a huge fan. And It was kind of crazy how just by showing a little sympathy to a guy who didn't deserve it, we got to a nicer place. So I tried this technique with this guy, Rich. So Rich tweets to me, she says they just need to die. Do you have ears? And I tweeted him, yes. And then an icon of the ears that they provide. Okay, that wasn't, you know, all empathy and reaching out. But then here's what I wrote. Rich, what I heard, and I've said as much on my show, is that attitudes don't really change because people change their minds, though they sometimes do. It's more because old attitudes, in this case racist ones, die off with the people who held them. I went on. It's like the pro-slavery sentiment, unknown today in the U.S., which I'm sure it's not unknown, but but from 1870 to 1920, it still existed. Many people who were alive during slavery never let go of being pro-slavery, but time marched on, they passed from this earth, it's a little softer than dying, right? And the attitude was eradicated. Rich, you wrote to me, quote, she says they just need to die. Who's the they the pronoun refers to? And then I quoted what Oprah really says. And I said, racism has to die for attitudes to change. Why are you sticking up and feeling defensive about people bred in racism? You're not racist. So don't feel defensive about what she's saying. I went on. There's one more. Maybe you're feeling that she's saying all white people should die. And that would be upsetting because then she'd be saying, you and I have to die. Trying to establish a little bit of rapport between me and Rich. I went on, but she's not saying that. She's saying people born and bred in racism. I wasn't raised like that. I'm going to assume you weren't either, which is extending the benefit of the doubt. So we don't have to feel that Oprah is cheering the death of an entire race. I interpret it as cheering the death of a racist attitude. Anyway, that's my point. I hope you see where I'm coming from. If not, that's okay too. And let me tell you, let me tell you what happened because of the example of Sarah Silverman. Maybe subconsciously Oprah trying to reach out to a person that really could have gotten testy and you know short Rich said when you get out of the shower use a q-tip to clean all that yellow shit out and you won't seem so stupid in the future okay to be fair after that is when I unleashed my tweet storm of understanding and uh, he tweeted at me something about the summer of love I said I don't understand there was a pause I started tweeting about the national championship game in football and there was some statement I made about a true freshman on Alabama, and Rich thought it was funny. Rich said, I don't know what you're talking about, but that made me laugh. we got no common ground on if Oprah is a racist and want people to die, but something about college football made me and Rich not hate each other. Maybe, in a way, and this is the best we could hope for, unless we're the extremely charming and outgoing Sarah Silverman, maybe this is the best we could hope for. But, uh, you know, I consider it a little bit of a breakthrough, or a the best you can hope for in the context. Twitter. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien who insists the Futterman beagles will have to die for this barking to stop. Mary Wilson, the just senior producer, is saying this eggplant will have to die for me to be a proper vegetarian. Steve Liktai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, he believes... That egg over there will have to die to properly celebrate Easter. The gist my old DVD player will have to die in order for me to see Cool as Ice, the 1991 Vanilla Ice movie, in the glory of Blu ray. Umperu, deperu, Peru, and thanks for listening.